Welcome to the Nashville Vineyard Podcast. For more information, please check us out at www.nashvillevineyard.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a great day. Well, we're starting our series where we're going through the book of James, and we're allowing the word to do its work and to form us uh, and to uh, create in us um, what it has. And so we're going to be taking uh, the next few weeks and walking through uh, a time where we, we just read the word and we allow it to speak to us. And we allow it to do, uh, do things in us and through us, and we begin to shape our lives uh, to the Word, as opposed to trying to find the Word and get it to shape towards our lives. Uh, the Scriptures tell us over and over again that, that, that the Holy Scriptures are faithful to, to complete the work. And so we're excited as we kick this series off in, in James. And James is very connected to uh, where we've been the past few weeks. We've been talking about what do Christians do? How does Christians uh, live? What, what do their lives look like? And, and James sort of carries that theme onward for us. And, it, and, it, and it, he puts into place and into practice uh, how, how our lives are supposed to to be formed into the image of Christ and how we're supposed to live. Uh, James, uh, we're not 100% sure who exactly authored James, but most scholars agree that, that it was probably uh, Jesus' brother, James. The James that we read about in Acts, who actually pastored the church in Jerusalem. And he, he wrote this around between 40 and 65 A.D., and and he wrote this letter after they were scattered uh, in persecution. Persecution came to the church in Jerusalem, and, and the Christians there, they, they scattered throughout the land, and James remained. And so I can imagine James uh, staying there and worried and wondering and getting word back about the people that he so loved. And so he writes this letter to them, and you can imagine these people and they're driven from their home, they're driven from their families, they're driven from everything that they know. They're starting over again. They're trying to find some way that they can, they can function, some way that they can make a living, some way that they can raise their families. And they're alone and they're confused. And, and if they're people like us, they have to be wondering, like, was this worth it? Like, what, what was all this for? And, and as, they're, as they're in some foreign place, I can just imagine their, their hearts being troubled. I can imagine them, them sitting around and thinking, well, I guess this is it. Because persecution was still being threatened and, and it wasn't a safe place to be a believer in Jesus. And the question has to be asked, is it worth it? Was this whole thing worth it? Did we make some terrible mistake? Because it had literally cost them everything they knew. And James writes this letter. And he writes this letter to, to, the, to the, what he calls the 12 tribes scattered. And I can picture them like us receiving this letter in a dim lit, cold, dark room, alone and afraid. And they begin to read. 
They begin to read this letter from James, and it's in that context that we need to read this letter. Because James is, is keenly aware of, of where these people are in their lives. They're suffering. And he wants them to understand what is going on in the midst of their suffering. And as we read this letter together, and as we walk through this letter together, we may not be suffering the same kinds of trials that the people, that the first audience were suffering. We may not be physically, violently persecuted here, now in Nashville, yet. We know that there are brothers and sisters currently around the world who are suffering violent persecution and death. But for us here in Nashville, we, we may not be suffering those sort of trials, but I know that when I look out and I, and I think of the stories that pop up from the different conversations pastorally that I've had with so many of you, I, can, I, can tell, I know that there is suffering. There is trials. There is tribulations here in this room in our church. And it's to that we need to allow James to speak, to begin to write the story over our lives. And we need to allow him to, to speak to us in those situations of trials. And it's where we pick up. And so we're just going to walk through this passage and begin to unfold what it is that he's telling us. And so he starts... In verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but it let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So here is James, and he's writing a letter to the people that are suffering, and they're really suffering, and they really are facing testing and trials, and the first thing that he says is that he says, count it joy. And if I were to receive that letter, I would want to throw it away at that point, because it's easy to say, hey, don't worry, be happy until you're actually facing something that is hard and difficult. And so I would want to say, what are you talking about, James? What do you, what do you mean, count it all joy? Well, he's not saying that we should live in some, some dispension of reality that we create for ourselves. It's not one of those uh, don't speak anything that's bad going on and happening. No, he's saying, listen, the word count it is, is a, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It carries this authoritative leadership command. In fact, sometimes it's translated as lead. And it's a commanding thought. And it says to consider, to take captive your thoughts, to take captive your, your imaginations and consider, rethink, see what's happening through the perspective that allows you to have joy. That's what James is saying. He's saying, I want you to gain a perspective on what's happening right now. And once you gain this perspective of what's happening, there is a reason to have joy. We must change how we're seeing things. We must reorient our perspective and begin to consider what we're seeing and be able to take joy. That's the key. We'll see you next week. So. But that's what he's saying. And so he's telling us to count it all joy because he understands that there is a reason that this is happening. 
There's, a, there's something that we can gain from this, and our perspective has to shift from our, our current situation, our current circumstances, and begin to take on an eternal viewpoint, an eternal perspective. This is what James is telling the people who are literally suffering persecution right now. He's saying, I want you to rethink what's going on, and you, once you get that perspective, you will be able to count it as joy. And he goes on, and he says, uh, because knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work for you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I think that if you're like me, you've experienced suffering. You've experienced hardships. You've experienced trials. You've experienced things that cause you to question What's the deal? And what I've found as, as, uh, as the longer I've sat with Jesus, the more that I've, I've pastored people and counseled people and walked through them and their faith journeys, the more that I've found is that what happens is if you don't have an understanding that James says when and not if trials come, if as a Christian you don't know that trials will come, They will come. Suffering will come. It's a guarantee. If you don't realize that, then what happens is you'll begin to be be enjoying your faith and things will be going really well until suffering comes, until trials come. And you'll begin to say, what? What's this again? I thought when I came to Jesus, everything became great. I thought when I gave my life to Jesus, all my troubles left. And I've seen it over and over and over again when when people come into faith and they haven't done the work and, and someone hasn't been honest with them about, hey, just so you know, life may actually get harder for you now instead of easier. And your best life may not be during this life. And, and so when you're, when you're moving forward, if you don't have a perspective on that, then what happens every time, every time what happens is you check out. You don't count it as joy because it's terrible. And you think Jesus is supposed to give you everything that you've ever wanted. And, and you think that means that whatever it is that you want and, and your comfort and the things like that, that's what Jesus owes you. And then when suffering comes, you're just, you're rocked. And James says that when suffering comes, when suffering comes, when suffering comes, when trials come, that's when we should begin to count it joy. And he says there in verse 3, he says, knowing, the reason is because knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And this word patience isn't really, patience isn't a great word for it. It can be translated into a couple of different things, but this, we have a modern Western definition of what this word means is patience. And it's not just a passive patience, it's an active wrestling patience. It's an enduring, it's a steadfastness, it's producing perseverance. He says that when trials and when testing comes, it produces in us perseverance, this wrestling. And when that perseverance has its perfect work on us, when it begins to, to do the work of staying fast in the midst of the trials and the suffering, when that's going on, He says that we may then be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The word perfect is more of a maturity word. 
In the Greek, it means to be mature, to be complete. He says complete after that, lacking nothing. So, in other words, when trials and suffering come, you count it joy because you understand that during this testing, during this time, you're going to begin to produce perseverance. And out of that perseverance will come a maturity in the faith, a maturity in the belief, a maturity as a follower of Jesus. And the goal of our Christian journey is to mature in our faith to become more and more and more like our Savior, who, by the way, suffered. And James is telling us, suffering will come. It will come. But if you can put your perspective from an eternal point of view, if you can begin to view it, then you can see that this suffering is going to produce something in you. And it's a steadfastness that begins to produce maturity in us. The whole point of what we do here, like our mandate here, is that we help people that call our church home mature and be equipped in order that they can go and do the work of ministry. That's the whole point of what I signed up for. And the only, like the best way that I can know to do that is to give you a very clear heads up that in this life, you will have trouble. It will come. And the goal is that we stand firm. We put on an eternal perspective. And we see it for what it is, an opportunity. The word testing here is a, is a word that has connotations of smelting, of being, being put through a furnace in order to be purified. It's what they did with metals and, and with gold. And so he's saying that, that if, you, if you stand firm, if you put on a right perspective, then you go through the furnace of suffering and, and you make it out on the other side. There's going to be a purity and, and a newness and a wholeness to what you are in the faith that you couldn't have had before. Because the other thing we know is that suffering is necessary. I have a hard time really trusting people unless I know they've really suffered and come out the other side. Because it's easy to trust God when things are great. And, and what I want to see is like, yeah, God is, is awesome and he's great, but have you, have you been hit so hard that you've been on your face and you've got back up? Because I can't tell you how many people I know that aren't getting back up. The goal is to finish the race. And a lot of people start this race. Jesus says that, that you're going to build a tower. That's our faith. That's our life. We're building a tower. And he says, would you not count the cost of what it's going to take to finish that tower? To be able to complete the tower? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you make sure you had enough resources, had enough money, had enough time? Wouldn't you really look at it? At, because it's going to be a tower that everyone's going to see. And he says, that's our faith. This is our life. We're counting the cost. 
And my, my, my hope is, is that we're surrounded by people who have counted the cost and they've said, yes, worth it. And I haven't done a good job if I don't outline the cost. And one of the, one of the big budget items in our, in our life of faith is suffering. And as a culture and as a society, we don't do suffering well. We, 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 don't, we don't like to sit in suffering. We, we don't appreciate suffering. We, we don't have language for it. We get uncomfortable with it. We move past it quickly. And so we find ourselves without a, without a frame of reference for suffering. Because we're inundated with the message, for the first time in history, by the way, that this life is all there is. Like pagan religions, all other thoughts and beliefs, up until like this point in history, have all assumed something else was coming. Because they were very familiar with suffering. And they thought, surely this isn't all there is. Because their lives were, were hard. But it's in, it's in our culture that we find, this is all we have, live it up, YOLO. This is our, this is our culture, is, is YOLO. Let's make the best of our life today. Which means that when tragedy strikes, when suffering strikes, when loved ones die, when dreams are shattered, we find ourselves without an anchor. No frame of reference. When our friends and loved ones are going through it, we don't even know how to deal with that because it's uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. If, if, if we can get one thing is that suffering will happen, but gold can be produced through it. And this is what Paul is meaning when he says in Romans 8.28 that all things can work together for good for those that love the Lord, for those that are called, for those that are chosen, for those that are in Christ Jesus. All things can work for good. What it doesn't say is that everything happens for a reason. That's not the translation of that verse. But what it, the verse does say is that God can take everything that's happened to you and use that to your good. This is, Paul can say this. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, uh, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison as we look not into the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is Paul. This is Paul who was beaten and whipped, beaten almost to death, like he should have died. He ran out of town. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a snake. I mean, you, you name it, he suffered. And he says that he counts it as for this light momentary affliction. It's that Paul. And the only way that he can say that is because he, what he goes on to say is that as we look into things that are seen, the things that are unseen, he's putting the weight and the benefit on the eternal. He says earlier, he says, our outer self is wasting away, but they're renewed inner day by day. He's understanding that there's more to life, more to our existence, more to our faith than today so that he can see this suffering as a light, momentary thing. 
and he can count it as joy. It's a perspective. A Christian has a perspective on this life that is completely other than the perspective of our culture. I want you to know that. You should think and act in a very strange way compared to how everyone else is thinking and acting. Because our whole lives are built, we've talked about it, we're built on avoiding suffering, avoiding pain, avoiding discomfort. And James says that when it comes, welcome it. Count it as joy because we understand it's purifying us. It's turning us into our Savior who suffered for us. So this is what James is saying. And so then he, the question has to be, well, how? I mean, I, I get it. That's a great theory. But how, does, how do I do this? How does that work? How do, how do we, I mean, has anyone suffered? And, and you get this, these platitudes and this fortune cookie advice, and, and you're just sitting there and saying, well, thanks, but that doesn't do anything for me. And he goes on and he begins to explain to us how we can actually do this, how we can have a perspective, and how we can count it as joy. He says in the next verse, he says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What we do is we take this verse and we forget where it lives. We, we forget, we quote this verse a lot. I quote this verse a lot because we all want to be wise. And I think about it in like an investment strategy. I want to have a wise investment strategy. And so I'll pluck this verse out of its home and I'll put it over that. And I'll say, Lord, give me wisdom on how to invest in the market right now. And maybe he'll do that. Maybe he won't, but that's not what he's saying here. James is saying in light of, of our sufferings, in light of the church that's persecuted right now. They don't need help on their investment strategies. They need help on how do they survive? How do they continue in the faith, in the face of death? He's saying, I want you to understand that God has a wisdom that's available into conquering this time of suffering, into moving through this time of suffering. And if you ask for his wisdom and his divine revelation, he will give it to you as to how to keep surviving through the suffering. God has a plan to get you through the suffering. This is what he's saying. So suffering is like a, it's like a mountain. Trials are like a mountain. Pain is like a mountain, and it just rises up right in front of you. And you don't know how to get over it. You don't know how to, how to get over the mountain. You don't know how to get through the valley. You whatever metaphor you want to use, it's just there. And it's daunting and it's overwhelming. And, and, it's, and it's just this giant cloud that hangs over every part of your life, every part of your life. And unless you ask God to give you wisdom on how do I climb and cross and move through this place, you'll be stuck. Because suffering can produce gold, but it can produce bitterness. It can produce heartache. It can produce disillusionment. And if we're trying to navigate through suffering and trials without a wisdom and revelation from God, then instead of gold in the furnace, we'll just be ashes. 
we'll just be burned up. It's like, it's like if there's a path to get across the mountain, you, you, need, you need a map. You, you need a way to get through it. Otherwise, you'll just be wandering around there forever. And it's in that context, James comes in and speaks and he says, you can get through this. You can overcome this suffering. You can overcome this pain. You can overcome this loss. But you're going to have to have wisdom from God as to how. Because each of us is going to deal with this at different times in our life with different things. And there's no pat answers. There's no steps one, two, and three on how do you move through suffering. I can't, I can't give you a list of three or four or five or ten things to do if you find yourself, do these things. It doesn't exist. Because each of us has to face this mountain alone. Us and God. We have to see it. We have to let it overwhelm us a bit when we see it. We have to, we have to feel it. We have to, we have to then press in and, and allow God to do his work and then, and then begin through the scriptures and through community and through, through prayer and through our friends and through all of those sort of things. Then the Lord begins to reveal his wisdom as to how we need to pass through it. That's why if you've ever been through hard times and someone gives you a verse and it makes you mad and doesn't do you any good, anyone ever done that? It's like, man, that's a great verse. That ain't what I need right now. But it helped them, right? I mean, they, they're, they're friends. They, they want, it helped them. It's because we have to go through this stuff on our own. We each have our own path through the suffering. And, and it's that revelation that not only shows us the path, but it's that idea of, of when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with us, and the revelation is where? Where are you in this suffering? Where are you when I'm lonely? Where are you when my heart feels like it's going to burst? Where are you when I'm in pain, when I'm in loss? Where are you? And what he promises is, is that if we ask for that wisdom, he'll give it to us. And we'll begin to see him in the middle of the mountain, in the middle of the path, in the valley of the shadow of death. It's the only way that it works. And he says that we're to ask for wisdom. And then we go... We go on and he says this, and again, it's just one of those things where you want to tear the letter up and you want to throw it away. Because he says this, have you been in suffering and have you been where you've, where you've felt like there is no way I'm getting out of this thing alive? And have you ever heard anyone say, where's your faith during that time? And it's a miracle that their nose isn't broken after they say that. I deal with righteous anger. I told you we were going to be finding sins when we're fasting. Apparently, mine's anger. I'm finding it. My wife is finding it. My kids are finding it. So this may have an edge to it this week.
But he tells us in verse 6, he says, that the second way that we can make it out is that we should ask God for wisdom. And then he says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Thanks, James. So life is terrible. I, can't, I don't even want to get out of bed. And I'm supposed to have faith without doubting? Like, really? But that's not what he's saying, actually. That's not what this, the words are meaning in the Greek. He goes on to actually say what he means. That word doubting is, is, a, is a word like double-mindedness, divided loyalties. And so James isn't saying that we're supposed to muster up this faith that doesn't doubt and, and then like beat ourselves when we feel doubt and to make ourselves have faith. He's not saying that. He's saying you need a faith that isn't divided. You need loyalty that isn't divided. In other words, God needs to be God. And your circumstances need to be your circumstances. Because what James knows to these believers in persecution, he knows that they're finding comfort and rest and safety from, from secrets, from their houses, from their new jobs. From, from their new life, from their new community. They're finding the things of God in those things. As they're being reestablished, as they've escaped persecution, like, okay, death is not right now imminent. And so what they're doing is they're building up walls to help them feel safe and secure. And they're putting their faith and their trust in things here, in loyalty in things here. And we do this too. We, we put our faith and our hope and our trust in, into money, into career, into position, into status, into relationships, into people, in, into position, into whatever. And he's saying that when you have a faith with that kind of double-mindedness, you will not be able to stand. It just won't work. Because those things will fail. Those things will go away. Those things will, will be shaken. And you'll be right back to where you started. To say, where is God? And he's saying that if you place your faith in anything else, anything else, it's not going to work. That's what he means when he says you have to have faith without doubting. So we ask God for wisdom, and then we also ask him, would you, would you show us where our loyalties are divided? Because there's, there's a thing, only God is not affected by our circumstances. It's only him that, that isn't troubled when things get bad. Because everything else is is sinking sand. I mean, Jesus says it like this, right? He says, he says that if, if, you're, if you're building a house, if you're building your house of faith, you can, you can either build it upon the rock, which is him, 
the rock of ages, or you can build it upon the sand. And he says, when the storms come, do you know what he means by that? Trials, tribulations, sufferings. When those things of life come at your faith, one of those foundations will fall, and one will remain. Only the one on the rock. And so here we sit, and if you're anything like me, you're, you're a person of divided loyalty. You're a person who's put your faith in a lot of things. You believe God, and you believe your bank account. You believe God, and you believe your health. And when those things slip, we find ourselves shaken. And James is saying, when that happens, take heart. Because you're getting to discover a place in your life that is on the sand that can be moved to the rock. That's why we should have joy. And so as I'm, as I'm thinking about my life, and, and I'm thinking about people that I know, I know that we're all on both. Like, like Christians and believers, both sides. Part of your house of faith has been planted on the rock. But I know if you're like me, there's parts of your faith that is still on the sand. And every time the storms come, every time suffering comes, every time the trials come, if we view them in the kingdom perspective, we get to say, ah, there's another part of me that didn't trust God. And we go out and we remove the sand and we, and we begin to put it on the rock. And James calls that maturity. Until one day, we have most of our house on the rock. It's how we can approach suffering biblically. We're, we're kingdom people here. We're people that believe in the miraculous, that are believing God for an intervention we're people that see sick people healed. We're people that, that receive instructions and answers and prophetic words and all of that. We're also people that don't. We're people that pray for the sick and, and they don't recover. And if we don't understand that this life is going to have suffering, then we're not going to understand the framework. A couple years ago, uh, we were just moving into this building, and my uncle was dying, and, uh, and, and he wasn't just like an uncle. He was an uncle that was like a brother. He was kind of like an older brother, and he was kind of like played a couple father roles in teaching me how to fish and hunt and cuss and that sort of thing, the things that, you know, older brothers do. I'm the oldest brother, and so he taught me how to do those sort of things. He introduced me to all of the vices, and, you know, but I loved him, and uh, he was dying, and uh, he, he was a little bit older than me. I think he was late 40s. And, uh, and he was dying, but we were seeing just incredible things happening. We were seeing, uh, I prayed for one person who was like, like deaf, like, like they couldn't hear, completely deaf. And their ears opened up. And uh, that's pretty neat. And so I was like, man, this is going to be great. So I wasn't worried about it because pff, he'll get healed. And, uh, and so we're moving into this this space, we're, we're getting ready to go into our morning services. It was sort of a big deal for us. And, um, 
and he was dying uh, across town. And so uh, I, I continued to say, well, I know he's, he's going to make it. It's going to be fine. And I was there in the room uh, when he died. And uh, I don't get to be around a lot of dead people, so I thought, well, maybe this is an opportunity to, uh, to raise the dead. Uh, maybe I was a little disillusional. Uh, and so I just was like, cool, this is it, let's go. And uh, so I start commanding him back to life, as you do. Uh, and uh, he, he didn't come back to life. And I was pretty upset by that. I was really upset by that. And when everybody left, I went for this really long walk. And, and on the walk, I was really mad. I was mad at God. And I was mad at, at a lot of different things. I, I couldn't understand it. I was, I was hurt. I was broken. I was angry. And, uh, and I just told him this. And I, don't, I didn't know why, why. Why did someone's ears open up and you couldn't raise, raise my uncle back? And I saw his you know, 20-year-old daughters that he left behind and his wife and, and me. And, and I was angry. Because I would have rather, if, if like we only get five miracles, I would have rather used the miracle on that than the homeless guy at the shelter whose ears opened up. And I just sat there, and I was just, I was just really honest. Because the suffering was coming. And what we can't do is deny that suffering is coming. We don't want to be a people that live in denial. I mean, Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus, and he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I have to think he knew he was going to do something. And, and he still wept and mourned. Even then, he had a place for the suffering. He recognized it. He embraced it almost. See, emotions are, are not bad. They're just bad masters. We can't be ruled by them. That's what James says. We consider it joy. We take thoughts captive. And so I'm on this walk, and, and I'm really upset. And I, I begin to pray, and, and, and eventually I come to this point of, where else am I going to go? And I kind of resolve inside of my heart that I'm still in. I'm still going to keep serving. And I was angry, and there was no answers. And, uh, but I'm, I'm in. Where am I going to go? And I wasn't employed here, by the way. So I could have left, and it wouldn't have been, it actually would have made my life a lot easier. Uh, so, but I just, I just decided, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? I've seen too much. And I just purposely said, okay, it's, it's on. We're still in it. Well, a couple weeks later, I get a phone call uh, from another pastor uh, out of state, and one of their members had been driving through Nashville and had some sort of fatal thing happen, and they were in the hospital. Would I go pray for them? And I, I, wanted, I said no at first and, uh, because I didn't have any faith, no faith. Didn't care about them, honestly, like who are they? Uh, you know, I didn't get a tithe check from them, and I don't want to go over there. Uh, but I went because it was my father-in-law and I couldn't lie to him for long without my wife knowing and it was a whole thing. So I went to the, to the hospital and I said, sure, send me the directions. And, uh, and so he sent me the directions and I, I realized that it's the same hospital my uncle just died in. 
And then I go, it's the same floor, it's the room next door. And I'm like, my prayer walking in is, are you kidding me, God? Like, are you kidding right now? Again, no faith. And, uh, and so she's there, and honestly, she's annoying. The wife is annoying to me. And uh, the whole thing is just awkward. And so he's there, he's in- intubated, and I asked the nurse, I go, so what are we looking at? Because one of the things the pastor said is, you know, tell me if I need to come up there and, and all of that. I said, I said, so what are we looking at? Are we looking at like days, weeks? And the nurse says, it's minutes or hours. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, and the wife has no idea, so I have to sort of tell the wife um, that, that her husband is not going to make it. Uh, and so she wants me to pray that he'll, he'll come to life. And I'm like, listen, I don't have a great track record in that, uh, is what I'm thinking. And uh, so I'm like, sure, okay, I just wanted to get out of there. And, uh, and so I pray a really faithless, empty prayer of just come forth, come back to life, uh, just rebuke death, in Jesus' name, see you later. Well, the dude walked out of there. Like, he walked out of the hospital, he lived, and then he died a couple months later. And honestly, that was even worse than the first time, because I was like, God, are you kidding right now? Like, you've got to be kidding me. And, and what I learned through all of that, as, as people that are, that are going after this stuff, that are people that are, are saying, our mandate is to heal the sick, raise the dead, you know, set the captives free. Like, that's what we are supposed to do. But we can't live for those things. We just can't. And he showed me in, in this that it's, it's relationship that keeps us going. It's not the outcomes. It's the relationship with Jesus that can continue to help us to walk through this thing. Not whether or not our prayers get answered. And guys, that's hard. Because we, we believe that the kingdom is coming. But we know it's just not here all the way yet. And we're in the tension of that. And every time we're, we're confronted with, we're going to pray for this. We're going to believe. But we're going to be there regardless. Because it's not about an outcome or a result. It's about a relationship. James goes on to tell us this. When he's talking about, he moves into this interesting passage about uh, the rich man, let, let him boast in his undoing. And the poor man, let him, let him boast where he's, where he's been brought low. And what he's saying is that the rich man, when he loses everything, he needs to enjoy that because he learns it's only Jesus. And the poor man, when, when he has nothing, he's rejoicing because he understands it's only Jesus. And James is, is speaking to a, a Jewish audience in a, in a Jewish time, in a Jewish context, and he's using language here about the flowers withering away that's, that's bringing back to memory this interesting passage in Isaiah 40, verse 6, where it says, the voice said, Cry out, and he said, then what shall I cry? And he says, all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades. It sounds familiar. And he goes on, and he says, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it, and surely the people are grass. And the grass withers, and the flowers fades, but the word of our God stands forever. He's saying over and over again, the only thing we have to put our anchor in is Jesus. It's it. The word, that's all you have. And when suffering comes, 
If your hope is in answered prayers, it's not going to last. If your hope is in feelings and emotions, it's not going to last. We only have one thing. If your hope is in a relationship, when that person leaves, when that person disappoints you, and they will, we're rocked. And we don't know what to do because that was where our hope and our faith was placed. And he says, it's a good thing. Now move your foundation back to the rock. And so then he goes on and he says, he says some interesting things here. He says, uh, in verse 14, he says this, but when each one is tempted, this word tempted actually is the same word for trials. And he says, when each one is tempted, when each one faces trials and he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The language that he's using here is one of adultery. And what he's saying is, he's saying, listen, these are principles but if you're just relying on principles and disciplines, it's not going to work because he's relational. He's the God of relationship. It's an intimacy. This word of, of adultery is like, a, so he's saying you're committing a spiritual adultery when your divided loyalties are at play. If we're the bride and he's the groom and there's something else going on, that's adultery, spiritually. And he says that if you, if you, Lay with that. If you spend time with that, what's going to happen? It's going to birth forth sin. And he says that we're drawn away by our desires. And some of the translations say evil desires. But a better, better word for that is inordinate. Extreme desires. In other words, if it's okay to like money. It's not okay to love money. And if our desires are for the money, is for the position, is for the status, is for the security, and it's inordinately there, if it's, if it's divided loyalties, that's going to bring forth sin, such as bitterness, anger, malice, envy. He's saying the only way that you can do this is through a relationship with Jesus, the person of Jesus. Anytime I've ever changed, it's been because I've seen the face of Jesus in that circumstance. And the relationship of love has caused me to change. Because what he's saying is, there is one who has suffered for you. There's one person in all of history who has endured more suffering than we can ever imagine, and he did it for us. That word perseverance we talked about, it's a, it's a Greek word, and it means, uh, I'm trying to find how to say it. It's like hupomone. You can find it. I'm not Greek. It's all Greek to me. And, and what this word means is, what does it say? Hupomone. That's what it is. It, it, it's this word, and so it means that patience, perseverance we talked about. And if you look at that, if you do like a word study and you find where that's listed throughout scriptures, 
you'll find that it sort of reaches this climactic moment where he's talking about perseverance and, and what it's worth. And, and, it, and, it, and you'll find in Hebrews chapter 12 that there was one who persevered for us. And we look at that. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, it's that word, hupomone, the cross, despising the shame and has set down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured, same word, such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. The only way that we can endure, that we can persevere, that we can stand fast, is if we first understand that there is someone who has done that for us. He did it for me. And as I was reconciling this thing that happened with my uncle and, and going through that, the question was, God, what were you doing during all of this? And he showed me that that was the wrong question. The question is, where were you? And over and over again, he was just saying, it's my grace that's sufficient. I know you want to be removed from these trials. I know you want an answer for why this suffering is coming. But what he's saying over and over again is that it's his grace that's sufficient. That's the way Paul was able to say that these are just light afflictions. And he's calling us to be a people that learn to endure suffering well. that learn to to count it all as joy. That learn to see him as the prize. To see the relationship with him as the prize. Otherwise, we'll never make it. We'll find ourselves shipwrecked amongst the waves of our emotions, and we'll never make it over the mountain. We will face suffering, and we will face trials. And there will be times where we think that it's going to take us out, that this is going to kill us, that there's no way around or above this mountain. And he's saying over and over again, but I'm here. It's the only way. So as, we, as we're reading this and, and we're allowing the scriptures to just do the work, you know, it's interesting. We, we, had, a, uh, we had someone who was in a prayer chapel and, and they, they felt like the Lord showed them this scripture and they didn't know what I was talking about today. And so it showed them uh, the scripture. They said, we, I really felt like it was for someone, just really felt like it was for someone today. And this isn't someone who comes up to me every Sunday with a new word. This, this doesn't happen a lot. With them, and so it was Psalms uh, 46, and specifically the first couple of verses that say, "God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble." Read suffering. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, 
though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Because he is our refuge. When suffering comes and the times of trouble and the times of trial and our house of faith is tottering, it's only through him and finding him and seeing him as worth it. That's it. It's the only way we'll make it. And God, help us to be a people that finish the race. There's too many of us that are stranded, that are shipwrecked because we've lost faith, because we didn't know that troubles were going to come. We didn't know that trials were on their way. But now you know. And when they come, we're here. That's part of the reason we're here. So that we can stand around. So that we can pray for the inbreaking of the kingdom. And we can believe that there's a miraculous answer to this. And then we can actually mourn and weep with you in the middle of it. And when you reach the other side, and you will reach the other side, we can rejoice with you. Because we're a community that believes that this world is not finished that Jesus isn't finished and that morning is coming and that a new day will dawn and one day there will be no more tears and no more crying and no more heartache but in the meantime he sent us to be there no matter what. So we're going to stand and we're going to worship. And the question, as always, is apparently, God, you have me here for a reason. And maybe you're in the middle of suffering. Maybe you're in the middle of heartache. And this is a reminder that God is with you there, too. And so are we. So if we could stand, we're going to worship. And the prayer is, Lord, could you show me, are there places in my heart that this trial has exposed that's built on the sand? Are there places in my life that I'm trusting something besides you? Someone besides you? And then just allow the Lord to do his work in us. Allow him to form us. So that we can consider it joy. Because this light affliction is producing an eternal reward. Lord, we are so thankful that you are not a God who keeps the truth from us. You don't want us to be caught off guard. And you have given us your Son, who for the sake of of the joy set before him, suffered on the cross. And Lord, we know that we're that joy. He suffered for us. Would you let that truth begin to be a seed that grows love for Jesus so that we can stand and endure as well? Would you water that seed and allow it to grow into a deeper love 
a deeper revelation of Jesus. So this is the time we're, we're going to reflect. And then afterwards, if you need prayer for anything, I'll come back up. We'll tell you to come down. We'll have a prayer team that will surround you. And, and if it's a prayer of just saying, guys, I just need someone to weep with me while I weep for a minute. Or if, you're, if your prayer is, I need someone to pray for the miraculous inbreaking of the kingdom because I'm sick, because, because of whatever it is, we'll pray for you there. But this time is the time that the Holy Spirit begins to show us where are those places that we need him. For all upcoming events and more information about the Nashville Vineyard Church, please check us out at www.nashvillevineyard.org. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you have a great day.